In today's data-driven world, the role of a data engineer has become increasingly important. As more and more companies realize the value of their data, they seek talented professionals who can build the infrastructure and pipelines to collect, store, process, and analyze massive amounts of information. However, the competition is fierce, and with data engineering becoming one of the hottest tech roles, how does one stand out in the crowd? In this episode, we sit with Shane Ismael, a principal engineer and co-founder of BigSpark, as he walks us through his journey and what he believes the next generation of engineers should be looking out for in the data space. Enjoy today's episode. This episode is brought to you by BigSpark. BigSpark is the UK's fastest growing data solutions consultancy, translating your business needs into data architecture, strategy, and engineering. Together with their technical partners, they focus on swift and efficient business value delivery. Taking an innovative approach to every challenge, BigSpark is an agile team of over 100 world-class engineers and data scientists pushing the boundaries of what can be achieved with AI, data, software, cloud, and machine learning. To find out how BigSpark can ignite your data solution, visit us at www.bigspark.dev. BigSpark, igniting change through engineering. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Tech Step Podcast, where we navigate today's tech wave one electrifying conversation at a time. I am your host, Raymond Cluche, and today I have my able co-host, McLean, here with me. And today we have a special guest, an amazing guest for that matter, <laughs> um, our boss, you know, from Big Spark here to, you know, have an interesting conversation with us. Um, I wouldn't want to, you know, go into all the juice for this episode. I'll let him, you know, give us all the good stuff. So without further ado, I will first like to say welcome, Shane. Shane Ismail, thank you so much for making time to, you know, join us on this podcast, regardless of your very busy schedule. And in the shortest amount of time, we just want you, you know, to introduce yourself briefly and then we can get into today's episode. Um, hi, yeah. Thanks, Raymond. Thanks, McLean. It's uh, great to be here. Um, uh, as I said, I'm Shane. I've been um, a software engineer for two more than two decades now. Um, um, I started my career at you know in telecoms with BT. Spent a chunk of time in retail. Um, done the majority of my car, my career in finance, mainly investment banking, working in of fixed income and rates. Um, most recently, the last 10 years or so, been focused on the big data ecosystem, um, working for uh, Deutsche Bank and NatWest, respectively, on their big data implementations and, you know, implement, introduce things like Kafka and um, Streamsets and SaaS and, um, and, you know, data science within NatWest. Been busy for the last few years. That's quite interesting. Um, we will delve a little bit into your background. So you did mention a bit of, you know, finance and everything. I know you have a background in economics and one will say, you know, there was a good career out there for you. You could have potentially, you know, gone down the path of becoming an economist and um, just, you know, have a great career from there. Then you just choose to leave economics and go into the tech space. Can you tell us a bit about that economics decision as a, so, as a study? yeah. So it's a great degree. 
yeah yeah it's a great degree to engage in it does teach you about the fundamentals of you know modeling and the economy and how things sort of systems interact so in those ways there's there's a lot of um analogous understandings and knowledge of how things interact um one of the things that you sort of need to be aware of with economics is there's, there's sort of two paths right you can either be a storyteller or you can be an analyst and beyond that and to stay in that, that economic strength um i didn't enjoy the storytelling and you know frankly the the daily grind of an analyst of doing the, the work was just yeah just not not for me i i enjoy spending time in excel i do enjoy the, building a good model but if that's the only thing i've got to i've got to do on a daily basis that's not really where where i wanted to end up in my career so i made the decision after doing an internship and doing a bit of work in this field, I made the decision to sort of stop and reassess and go, okay, what do I really enjoy? And I enjoy the econometrics, I enjoy the analysis, and I enjoy building the models, right? And that sort of sort of swayed me towards the programming element because that that is very much like proto-data science from 25 years ago. Um, taking large amounts of data, modeling it, coming up with some sort of rarefied conclusions from that. That was it, really. And that's made the decision to actually, I quite enjoyed, you know, programming and working with computers Mm. and taking that step where it wasn't just Excel, it wasn't just a bit of VB code or a bit of basic to sort of learning, structurally learning how you can um, drive through change. It sort of was sort of important to my career. All right. That's quite interesting. So software engineering is not data engineering necessarily. You know, one would say software engineering is, you know, um, um, data engineering is applying software engineering principles to data. But then you said you went into, you know, the big data space and that's data engineering for that matter. How did you get started with that? Would you say your background from economics um, coupled with your programming skill just led you up there or you were just curious or someone just, you know, told you about the space and you decided to hop on? You know, back when I started, there wasn't a separate discipline of data science mm. so, or, uh, or, or data engineering. You know, essentially it was it was just the work, right? So I went from, you know, building analytics, right? Um, bond pricing analytics. I was my daily driver. That's what I did every day. So I had to scrape through the data, make sure it was the right shape, build the model to go with it, make sure that the model was consistent, testable, and we could validate it, and then make sure the output went to the right place in terms of reporting and BI. So within that, you've got the pillars of, you know, data sourcing, data engineering, you know, data um, data science, and BI and reporting. And then largely you're responsible for taking that, that, that thread of being organized, make sure you're reporting, doing all of the things you need to do in order to be functional. So as we've got through time, right, there's been a specialization in terms of skills. Now, I was able from a very early age to, in in terms of my career, to mm. take, you know, unstructured data sources, um, pricing from bond pricing or, right. or FX pricing that were coming on a in a stream, and take those and have to put them into a stru- structured form and then mm. calculated analytics of 
Packham. That pretty much sounds like data engineering to me. Right. right. Different label, right. different process, <laughs> right? different tools. Because back then it was, there was, the Python existed, but it was all Perl and Sybase and, and Java. Whereas now the sort of the world's moved on mm-hmm. and you've got Python and you've got, you know, um, Spark and Scala and, and, and R. R. Um, uh, that wasn't a funny joke, but it made me laugh. <laughs> so obviously, you know, we are talking with someone who has a wealth of experience. You're talking about 10 years. I don't, I don't know you, McLean, but 10 years ago, I probably was, you know, um, struggling in my, my computer science or IT degree, still wondering if I wanted to do that as a career, but you were in the industry. So I just want you to, I just want you, you know, to tell us how, from where you stand, how the, how, how data engineering has evolved for the past 15 years. Maybe just take us back from, you know, like a timeline of the sort. Yeah. So I think data engineering historically had always been that desk-aligned, business-aligned function where we took data out of technology systems and turned it into a usable form. Mm. So back when I was working in BT, BT Internet, doing the telecoms industry, the whole data engineering experience was in Excel. Mm. We would source the data from the source systems, and those reports would come in 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 CSVs or Excels or – or or database extracts, we would load them in, we would write a load of VB to turn them into the right shape, and then we would turn them into the the, the outcome or the asset that we're interested in. Right. And that was that's really the journey, right? And that and essentially that tooling sort of as you got more professional, well, actually I need it to be I need to run it overnight. Mm. Right. I need to run it in a, I need to be able to catch all the errors and cope with change. So that's that migration from Excel to, well, actually do, let's do the, the industrial bit, the hard right. bit in Perl, right. because it gives us more flexibility, allows us to date, chill, deal with data on a, a, um, a record by record basis and process it. Mm. Right. And that, and then you had your outcomes. And then there was another wave where we, you know, the ETL wave where we would load the data into a database you know, the data engineering was, okay, let's just get it into the database and we can use the, the database structures and tools to because Perl and, and OO languages right. on structure tend to operate on a record basis. So once you're in a database, if you need to deal with a million records or five right. million records, right, actually it's a lot more effective to, to do the same operation right. on a thousand records as one. So you had that journey through time. And to some extent, if you look at Pandas and the way that Spark and modern tooling works, it's more mm. a hybrid of both. So you take functional programming and you take an operator to hand, to act upon a set of data based upon a set of conditions. Right. So you've got the, the best of that, you know, that Venn diagram, that, you know, set mathematics approach to right. database processing to the high performance, high performance analytics, flexible nature of you know using Python or using Spark slash Scala for right. you know for that you know big data performance. So the key drivers for all of this, right? You've got that standard ETL framework, but you know the so this brings it back to my background in business, right. background oh, okay. economics. Right. So the drivers for all of these things are we need to do things more efficiently 
we need to do them less often and we need to do them more effectively. Right. 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 So how do we do that? How do we deliver that? And there's there's always trends and there's always things changing in, in the industry and, and in, in what the latest, you know, data lake house is the, the big trend in 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 the big data spark world. Right. But that's not that far away from um you know structured data schemas going back twenty years. Right. The language is different and the technology is different, but in the thinking, right, it's very much, you know, how can we get the right data in the right place at the right time quickly right. and efficiently so we don't need to mess around with it too much. Nice. So that's what that's really what's changed. Fundamentally, that's really what's changed. It's like, well, the technology keeps moving, the thinking keeps evolving, and this is the key element of what we're doing because how do we get, you know, the important thing, how do we get the data that we need to make good decisions in a business, mm. right, into the right people's hands in the right forms? Right. Right? Because nothing else is that important. If we could literally, my one of my first jobs years and years ago, right, I was working with a guy um, helping him calculate um, the yield, work out the yield curve for inflation-linked bonds. Right. And we hadn't really done this at JP Morgan before. And um, the algorithms existed, but they told there was a problem with them. And I couldn't, I spent a month on it. I could not figure out what the problem was. Right. So I ended up rewriting it later on. But largely, I spent a month going to a Bloomberg terminal. And this guy used to sit on the floor behind me as a graduate. This is one of my, one of, he asked me, well, if you can't do that, can you make sure my reporting's straight? So I tried to write a program to do it. It's a bit hard. Didn't have the skills, didn't have the knowledge or the experience to be able to do it. But actually, what he wanted was already on Bloomberg. Right. So every morning I used to get in half, half an hour before him print out his reports from the previous day, right? Staple them together and leave them on his desk. Interesting. <laughs> right. Find the right solution to the problem. Don't mm. code is not always this is the point, right? And we've had this conversation, yeah, you know, collectively at Big Spark before, right? Right. Cause sometimes code's the right answer. Doing the right thing in an engineering context right. is really quite powerful and can drive the company forward and drive the projects forward. But right. actually when we're doing these things, when we're doing data engineering, what is the thing that would add most value? Mm. Copying that field from the file to the database? Mm. Maybe, mm. right? But actually, just getting it 80% of the data in there and working mm. and having a report with the understanding that we've explained to the business partners, you know, it's 80% there, mm. might be enough. Mm. So your time to delivery is really important. Mm. And that's the new wave of data engineering tooling and capability, mm. right? Data completeness and data quality are really critical, but they're critical in terms of understanding what you've got rather mm. than, oh, we can't do anything until we've got that thing done. Mm. All right. So I've drifted off your question quite. No, no, it's actually perfect because I think the way you segued into, you know, code is not always the answer. I remember I was having a discussion with McLean, even you know, ahead of you know preparing for my podcast, and 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 we we said something like there was one of the points like you know don't like don't develop that feature or don't write that you know like don't 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 code that feature or something. I don't remember like remember McLean, can you remind me? Agony. Agony. 
um you ain't gonna need exactly it. So like you ain't gonna those. need it so it's actually you know it's actually around the same you know topic of you know code may be good but then the other um, crucial things that you have to take into consideration as you progress speaking about projects i just want you to you know expound a little bit about your uh, like maybe one interesting unconventional project you've worked on one that you found a data engineering project preferably one that you found very interesting unconventional if 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 it is and you know just tell us a bit about you know the problem how you solved it and what the results were possibly so it's probably it's interesting because it was a sort of inflection point in my career so mm -hmm. i had done a load of work with um with a company called swiss re on their data um it was called rdb reporting database right um and it had an excel it was just it had a vb front end and it was really it was it was great it was quite innovative at the time but right. it sort of it was uh, coming to its end and i sort of left that um just around the same time as the 2012 olympics so you know in terms of job market it was really quiet and i ended up um seeing on linkedin oddly enough a friend of mine saying oh anybody looking for a job right now and i went yeah. yes okay. um and uh, a guy called alex alex mcclintock um hits him on linkedin he's a sort of he's a good guy he's um, an interesting guy um, uh, and I joined him to do to to help build out a a fashion analytics platform, which is still running. If you want to Google for um, WGSN in stock, okay. um, and I probably I learned far too much from most blokes should ever know about women's apparel. <laughs> um, so largely, what it did, right, and fundamentally, the project was all around gathering data around um, women's clothes, yeah? And um, my role was really, I remember I, at this point, I was a Java developer. I hadn't done a lot of, I hadn't done, I'd done one prototype on big data mm. historically, and I hadn't really touched it before. And it's a very, in some ways, it's a, it's a good straitjacket to get into mm. because it, it stops you worrying about stuff. It gets you focusing on the problem, and actually, you have to fit your your solution to your problem in a, a very tight box. Right. Whereas most programming most programming tools give you as much freedom as you need to do whatever you want. Back then, Hadoop was all about MapReduce, and there wasn't anything else. There was no Spark, there was no Scala, there was just MapReduce, nothing else. Right. So, largely, this platform took took data, scraped data which was provided by another team um, and then basically created large files, which we then had to um, pass, you know, categorize, classify the data, you know, grab all the images, resize them, make sure they were in the right place and then publish them. And we shoved the whole lot into a, the a big elastic search index for us to right. then serve us for website. So, we were interested in things like, you know, what the images were, what the material composition were, what right. the prices were. For example, if you, for example, take a, a little black dress from Marks and Spencers. Now, some of these companies may not look exist, so, so forgive me, I'm not in au fait with this stuff anymore. If you take a little black dress from Marks, Spencers and Cumber from River Island or from Reese or one of those other bigger fashion companies, mm. all right, you've got... A diff, you've got a variety of price ranges for different different consumers, but you've also what drives that is not only the the the, the brand and the brand impact, mm. 
but also the materials and the the composition of the materials. So those are embedded within the um, the the data that's scraped off the off the web. So we needed to each one of those companies have a different format, you know, and each one of these materials may have a different name. So mm-hmm. understanding that and putting together analytics and driving a model whereby we could take what we think is the same thing through mm-hmm. potential, you know, image analysis or right. price analysis or just, yeah, you know, actually sometimes it just was called a little black dress, mm. right? And then we can, for each of the retailers, we could then understand why, what it was made up of and where it was made. And from the back of that, we could sort of compare where all of the um, materials came from and what was the constituent pricing. And you then had a, a product where uh, merchandisers and buyers from like retailers would come and say, oh, okay, we're interested in that data. Let's have a look at what's happening right. in the market. Mm. And that was, that's all, where, that's all where it came from. So that was really my first big data project. Mm. First on Hadoop, Hadoop on the cloud, first interaction with Cloudera ever. Mm. First interaction with Elasticsearch. Mm. Um, and my responsibility really was to do, to take the data, build all the classification rules, make sure the data was modeled correctly into the data store. Mm. We use a tool called Pig, which nobody uses nobody anymore. Nobody talks about Pig these days. <laughs> no. Yeah. But yeah, transposing Pig Latin into, into Python is fairly mm. trivial. Mm. I suspect there's a tool that will do it automatically Definitely. now. Especially with um, the rise of AI tools, definitely. Even before AI, it was definitely there. Exactly. I think I might have written one as well, but I didn't like Pig very much. <laughs> Hello there, Tech Surfers. I have got some news for you. The Tech Surf Podcast is now on Instagram and LinkedIn. Follow us on Instagram at the Tech Surf Podcast and LinkedIn, the Tech Surf Podcast, to stay up to date on new episodes and to get interactive. Don't forget to like, share, and send us feedback on your favorite episodes and the lessons you've learned. See you soon. All right, so let's delve a little bit into, you know, the topic of data engineering or a data engineer. So you have been in the space, you have seen um, quite a lot of, you know, trends, development whatsoever. And there's a lot of hype, you know, currently in our industry, you know, AI is taking over a lot of things. But we'll get into that later. What would you say, you know, as one who has worked as a data engineer, hired data engineers and training data engineers, what would you say makes one a good data engineer? Maybe your top five skills or top five things that you would say makes one a good data engineer. Um. So I'm 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 probably an outlier in a lot of these things. So the way mm-hmm. I assess people and understand skills. So number one is curiosity around what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so I mean that in so much. I mean what I mean specifically is um, how do we uh, how do we talk about when you're when you're given a task in a, in terms of data engineer the guy that goes I say oh can you just build this table for me and I'll say oh here's the schema it's this table and you know I'll, I appreciate the people who just say yeah fine Shane and crack on with it that's brilliant mm-hmm. I really appreciate that mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. Um, the guy that comes to me and says 
that's great. Who's it for? Why are we doing it? When does it need to get done by? Right. And, you know, what are the acceptance criteria for outcomes? Mm. Right. That sort of interested is really important. Right. Yeah. Um, now, I can, if I can expand into why if you want me to, but um, number two, languages are not important. Mm. Right. But given that, if you don't understand when I say, oh, on Cobb normal form or a star schema, that would be bad. Mm-hmm. Right. If you if you you need to understand the difference between writing something in a um, an OO language or a function language and being able to write those scripts. So, you know, as a minimum, you need to be able to shell script. You need to be able to interact with a database. You need to be able to um, write in a functional um, and or you know, object oriented language. Mm-hmm. These are all really quite important skills. Because for me, the languages and the tools are a tool bag, mm-hmm. right? When I started my career, I had a hammer. Okay. Right? Java is a hammer. Yeah? <laughs> sure it's is. great, but you could do lots of things with a hammer, right? But you, finesse is not one of them. Mm. Right? You can do finesse if you're good, and it requires skills, and that's why you, over time, you add, you know, the great thing was that but when I was when I was probably two thousand five to six, there was loads of books on learn these five databases. Right. right, those books, and those books still exist, and I would recommend you know um, knowing more than one NoSQL database, knowing a relation database, knowing you know Python, knowing having a go at Rust, you know because they are different skills and different approaches to solving mm. problems, mm. and it's all about solving problems, right? Right. Um, organization, mm. right? Organization, organization, right? If you, if you, if you're okay, I am not an organized person at the best of times, mm. right? I am bloody chaos, right? When I'm trying to do more than one thing at a time, when I'm focused on doing the one thing, I have a very structured approach, right? right? When I write code, I will write the pseudo code on the page on the paper and this data engineering software doesn't really matter right i will write what i'm trying to get out of each function and i'll restructure it so that i've got the um got the structure that i want mm. with all the steps and that'll drown out a lot of things i can right. turn those to bdd tests i can turn those into a documentation right it gives me flexibility right but it also what it does it gives me well, actually, this is a bigger job than I expected. So mm. I know almost straight away, within a within a few hours, actually, I've taken on the story points I gave this piece of work are much, much greater. So mm. much less than I should have done. At that point, I can flag that. And I don't need to wait for the next Scrum Meeting the next day. I'll say, oh, you know, I messed up here. Scrum Master, I messed up here. This is more complicated than I expected. Mm. Can we, can I, can I... Um, yeah, we, I need to revise this this estimate. It's wrong, and this is why it's wrong. So yeah. that that means that we can communicate out to stakeholders way in advance of when it becomes an issue. Right. Right. Um, actually, I touched on the last one: communication. Mm. Right. Um, when I'm under pressure and under stress, right, one thing I do is I I'll switch off projects and I'll switch off my outbounds until I'm focused on the thing that's causing me stress. 
Mm. Right. That's good for functionally delivering what I do. But all of the other things I've just abandoned. Right. Will cause problems. Right. That being able to maintain the communication, maintain, um, be really polite and, 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 but be really clear around what not needs to be done. So again, that, that approach to that, the approach to communicating out. Defensive programming, data Mm. engineering is all around data is rubbish. Generally, right. I should write, that should be the book. If I'm not going to write a book, it's always, it's going to be named data is rubbish, right? Because the majority of the data out there that we've consumed, if I get a hit rate on the model of what I expect the data to look like, it gets about 60%, mm. right? 40% is always like, there's always something wrong with it, right? right? So if you have a strong schema, or a strong schema validation upfront on inbound, you know what your problems are before before you you've even run your script. But when you run your script, if something says it's going to be a float, right? Check it. Mm. Right. Make sure you can do the conversion before you do the conversion, because you've got the difference between a you know a checked exception and unchecked exception. Sorry, I'm I'm really dry, di- dialing down here. No, right? no, no. It's actually good stuff here. But yeah, we like it. Keep going. Yeah. So, but but this is what I mean. The point is. A runtime exception, exception from a programming perspective, right, mm-hmm. is expensive. Mm-hmm. But you've got to run the stack and it comes back, you've got to catch it and you go back into the float. Mm-hmm. Whereas a checked exception, you can go, oh, is this field a float? Can I convert this thing to a float? The mm-hmm. answer is yes. You just progress. If it's no, you go straight onto your error topic. Mm-hmm. Or, or, sorry, I'm thinking very much in streaming in real time. <laughs> if well, you think right. about batch terms, yeah, we like that, but that's not that's that's yeah. the, that's tomorrow's world. That's not today. Therefore, therefore. Um, but the point is, you can triage that data, right? Mm-hmm. And sort of the final big one. I think I've got to five. The final big one, right, is the guys that ask themselves, "What would happen if they get woken up at five o'clock in the morning and they have an hour to fix this problem?" Right, what logging, what monitoring, what other stuff have you put in place that mm. makes their life easier? Because them is probably going to be you, right. right? And I've learned that the hard way, having been woken up to fix my own rubbish code at three o'clock in the morning and mm. having no sleep, small child screaming in the background, and having to fix things on the fly. Right, right? It's no fun whatsoever. Right, right. Um. I find that to be very interesting how you have just, you know, I think you've taken all the points and you've really drilled down to help someone understand. Because when I was in school, I happened to have, you know, just done one course of data engineering. And the first work I had done was to, you know, calculate the TI, um, the TFIDF of, you know, um, a bunch of texts and everything. And then we saw it from the point of, you know, sourcing the data, doing all that. Now I knew that as big data or data engineering but i didn't know what it meant to be a data engineer until i started working at big spark and seeing the different portions and how you have broken these skills down i think it'd be very good for someone even for those who are currently in that role and someone who's yet to get into that role to think holistically about their problem solving approach both from the technical bit and also from the human bit so that when you are put into such situations you you have more control of what you do so i believe that is very great speaking about 
big data and all that is going on in the space like you know you were making reference to you know real time like like batch sorry batch and 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 streaming and all that before we even get to that in more there are a lot of things that are going on in the industry today and you have been here for a long like for a long time if in the shortest possible time you can tell us a bit of the misconceptions you've seen over the period of time and maybe debunk one or two of them if you can um it may not necessarily be data engineering but tech you know, I know it may be a controversial one, but we like a controversial scene. <laughs> um, I think, so, okay. Data science, right, right. is, <laughs> sorry, I shouldn't say this, but yeah, basically, you know, I've worked, I've worked with models and, and with, you know, with data quite a long time. Data science Right. Some of the models that I've been given to productionize have not been good. Mm. Right. Largely to implement, you know, taking, um, applying standard models to problems is going to be, you know, which is what a lot of data science do. They just try various models with the various frequencies, right. With different, different approaches and, you know, depending on which gives a better outcome, we'll say, okay, this is the thing to use, which right. is which is a which is a which is the standard approach, right? Right. It's not. I don't feel that that's a hypothesis driven. But the other thing is, I think, um, I think this is obviously an opinion that um, largely, you know, as AI sort of drives through change and we can get better data into AI models. Right. Um, largely that role will get smaller and smaller. Mm. Okay, awesome. Um, yeah, so Shane, um, I quite remember when I entered um, or when I got into data engineering, um, a friend of mine, Joe, who we all know, uh, and he's been on this podcast before, um, he showed me a site that I think it said, um, is it a Pokemon or big data? Right, because there were a lot of, um, I mean, there are a lot of data engineering tools um, and also like numerous billions of ways you can use it, right? So how do you approach the trade-off between um, building your own custom data engineering solution, right, versus using an off-the-shelf tool? Um, what services or what factors influences um, your decision in making um or going with either approach who's going to use it what's the ecosystem i think i wrote a blog post a few years ago on choosing the right um making technology choices um and so okay take take so i've, I've done some product selection for various companies over the years um and one of them was all around the team that were going to use it right i needed a a low-code solution that had flexibility to bolt on, you know, other languages had certain factors around, you know, result reliance and um, and scalability that were sort of key, right? And those were driven by, not by me personally, but by the environment that we're in. So you've got those. If you think about that force diagram, it's like, well, the biggest force is like, well, what what are the skills of the guys that are going to use it? How how are they going to leverage it, right? And what's the route to life? That's mm-hmm. one of the big drivers, right? 
in the other drivers, well, what's the policy from a company perspective? What's their approach to technology, right? Because the reality is if they're not going to allow those engineers to ever deploy production pipelines, right, to to an environment, then, you know, essentially you, could, you need to take a very different approach to, well, actually, we can be quite pragmatic and quite smart around how we deliver change. So the underlying technology, it's all they're all much of a muchness. You know, mm-hmm. whether it's DBT or Fivetran or stream sets, which obviously I know well, um, or actually just writing pure Python and running them in running them in lambdas, mm-hmm. right, or data stage or whatever, or data step. It's all much much of a muchness. But it's the thing that that get that the primary thing that gets missed for me. Right is testability, data testability. Nobody's there's no product in the market. Monte Carlo and there's a few others, but largely nobody sold it. Solved well. How do you do BDD for data? Behavior behavior driven dive for data. I don't think there's a solution for that. It's a gap in the market, and I thought about it a bit, and it sounds like a hard problem. So I went and did my day job. It's great. <laughs> um, so that, that's sort of key. Um, how do we, what analytics do we provide on the data as, as it journeys through our systems, right? What what metrics do we capture? That's that's all now called observability. We just used to call that data metrics and metadata, but now observability, all right? And, and, and the third one is velocity, right? From me, right, when I do product selection, you know, it, it's different, right? Whether I need to run things on a batch or real time, I'll make different decisions, mm. right? If I have a absolutely crack, you know, suite of, you know, high high core Java devs, right? I will make a very different decision, and you know that core team plus the appetite of the company to build versus buy, I will make a very different decision from that compared to, oh, I've got a load of people that are historically analysts, used to Excel, you know, very much just will hack stuff together to make it. I'll want to put a much more structured, a lot more, you know, you know, prompted development routines into them so that actually I can templatize a lot of the things that they would do, mm. Right. You know, revalidate the connections up front and basically give them a put your code in here. So it might just be get the data into a database so they can write their SQL queries a la you know, Snowflake. You know, that's where the DBT use case is really useful, right? Would I choose to write, if I was running a platform and it was my job to write the pipeline, would I choose DBT? Not in a million years. <laughs> I see. Do you have, do you have any... Um... Any issues with guys from DBT or DBT is a great tool, but it's a database tool for doing stuff in a database, right? Mm-hmm. Having been the guy that's written that for years, right? It gets to the point where it's limiting, mm-hmm. right? When you want to do actually clever stuff on the data, right? You'll have to write interceptors to do it, right? And you can do that in Snowflake. It does work, but why give yourself that grief when you could, if you've got a good development team in Python, right, have it running through a stream of, of consumer producer of your your transformations and have an observer watching the data and extracting out your metrics and sending them over to um, 
send him in real time to Splunk or to um, or to Elastic. Mm. In which case, you get your observability for free. Well, not free, but it's like you don't have to do any work to get there. So that did I answer your question, or did I talk around it? I felt like I talked around it. <laughs> yeah, you you talked around it, but you you answered it too. <laughs> yeah, um, I I mean um, data engineering. Well, um, I found it to be sort of interesting and also tricky, right? I mean. Um, the data that you provide. You don't know um, what the data, or you might or might not know what the data will be used for. Um, and also, um, you don't know the decisions that will be made based on the data that um, you, are, you are building the pipeline or whatever you're doing for, right? Um, and uh, my experience, I, I know before I heard of the butterfly effect mm. and um, what for rather something really, really small might, I mean, um, have a big impact on um, something that you might not know, right? So I'm, I'm wondering if um, in your case, if you have, um, if you experienced a situation where um, a seemingly minor oversight in, a, um, in data engineering had a major consequence in um, your organization? Because I, I know you have experience in working in big organizations. So I don't know if you have um, an instance where you can share with us. God, yeah. <laughs> so you remember I talked about indexing bonds earlier on, mm -hmm. and I said oh, I didn't know, I couldn't fix the analytics, mm -hmm. right? I just didn't know. It took me, it took me months to figure out what the problem was. Mm. In the end, it turned out to be the inflation curve, right, that was coming inbound from a different system, right, had some bad data in it. Right, because I hadn't written validation on the inbound data, I just sort of said, oh, this is the inflation rate for the last, I think you needed like, oh, it's been a long time, but about three three years worth of, two or three years worth of data in order right. to work out what the curve was, um, the historical curve, and then you'd interpolate it out to the future points. Um, and that's how you'd calculate the curve because, okay, for those of you who don't know, an inflation-linked bond, right, is you lend, for example, the UK government £100, right? They pay you back based upon the current rate of inflation plus a margin on top. So inflation right now is 5.6.5% off, 5 point, so whatever the number is, right? The government will pay you an additional 1% or 2% on top of that. So in order for us to work out what the yield future yield curve is, we need to interpolate what we expect inflation rate to be in the future, right? right? And then add the, add the, the margin on top. Right. So then the and the only real way of calculating, you know, you know, future expectations of um, of inflation, there are other ways. But in this simple example um, was to take the historical inflation rate curve and to say, well, historically, this is what the curve would be. And we do some interpolation and there's some other factors to it. But fundamentally, that's it. But because there was a spike where we had bad data for one month. Right. And I literally fixed it. Right. By ringing up the guy who produced the file, because it was a bloke back then that copied it off of somewhere or some spreadsheet or something. Right. Saying, oh, this number's wrong. He went, oh, yeah, of course it is. Let me go and fix that. And that was literally it. 
So when we talked about defensive coding and programming stuff, so that's what I mean by the butterfly effect. A tiny oversight of the decimal place was in the wrong place, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. In a CSV file with, you know, 500 records in it, a thousand records. I can't remember. It was this wasn't even a big file. But the thing is, if you scan through it in Vi, right, you couldn't see it. It was mainly because my the font I was using was bad. Okay, that was another thing. Sorry. Data engineering skills, use the right font. <laughs> that was a good one. That was a good one. That was a good one. Speaking of um okay, now we do so okay, so now we're gonna move away from data engineering a little bit because I know you, Shane, you are super busy. Anyone who has worked with Shane knows that the it's work to get Shane because he is very, very, very busy. So the work added to getting Shane is also a task. It's not an, it's a non-trivial task. So when you get him, you milk him down, you drain him of all the energy you can get, and then you go on to the work you can do. And I do I, I do admit that you have a very busy schedule. What do you do to, you know, wind down, relax, you know, with everything? You're a father, you're a husband, and I know you're a rugby coach. I don't know, maybe you're potentially a singer. Maybe you can, you know, show us some other parts of you, creative sides of your, like, of your life that we do not know about. Um, I don't think there is. I think you've pretty much covered it there. Um, I, um, so if you guys didn't know, it's the uh, it was the 30th anniversary of the release of Civilization yesterday. Oh, wow! So yeah, I spent a couple of hours playing Civ. <laughs> Interesting. Um, which which was fun. Um, in the evening. Um, but yeah, apart from that, I read a lot. Mm. Read read probably too much. Oh, book book du jour. I'll probably I'll lend this one to you, Raymond. I'm going to take it. Thank you. What, what, so what, what it's called it? um, Order Out of Chaos by Scott Walker. Okay. It's um, from a, a kidnap negotiator oh. and applying negotiation techniques to everyday life. Really good. Right. right. It's really good in terms of communicating, effective communicating right. in difficult situations. That, that's what it's all about. It's really good. Really a big, a big, big fan. Um, um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, if you see, I'll just turn my camera around. There's lots of Lots of books and my lunch that I sort of sort of float on. Um, I play the piano very poorly and the guitar. Okay. (laughs) Um, And that's about it, really. As you said, I sort of coach a bit of rugby. Mm. I did do choose for rugby. Mm. I think um, taking that time out to to. Okay, now I'm going to do a story. You know me; can't help a story. Um, there's a, there's a, there's a film with Hugh Grant from many years ago called about a boy. Mm. Um, and Hugh Grant's this sort of character that's independently wealthy, right? But, but it's really important for, in order for, to exist where you don't need to work, you don't need to, you know, he's not got relationships. He's just in a, he's in his own little box, um, to have purpose and to live purposefully. Right. His purpose was terrible, but it actually struck me. I remember watching it at the cinema in Edinburgh in the Cameo Theatre and, and watching it on the big screen. Mm. And he went through how a man with no purpose mm. ingrains purpose into his life. Mm. You know, he splits the day into small chunks. He applies it to different things like, oh, you know, I'll go for coffee and it takes me, I'll make breakfast, it takes me this long and this is what I like to do. Right. And I'll go out shopping and I'll do this and I'll find records and I've got my record listening time. Right. Now, um, my time tends to bleed into each other. As you mm. said, it's, um, um, things get busy. 
Mm. But m- making time and making making the opportunity to do these do other things is really important. Mm. Um, now I write a bit. Um, I read a lot. Mm. Um, I like you know I run a bit. I eat too many cakes. That's probably not a good thing. And I do too much DIY, poor DIY, which my wife curses me for. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. <laughs> yeah. Um, Shane, so let's say, um, well, we are, Raymond and myself are engineers and we work under you, actually. And you're a fantastic boss, by the way. Um, <laughs> oh, yes, you yeah. are. But, but I mean, anyone who says otherwise is obviously telling lies. But um, so, so right now, we all aspire to be um, in your shoes one day, right? So my question for you is, how do we get there from where we are? Mm. Um, for those who don't know, um, um, I'm a senior engineer at um, Bixpark, where Shane is a co-founder. And I also want to be, um, if not a co-founder, the head of an organization one day so i'm wondering shane how do you get there from where we are um yeah i'll probably tell this okay so it's really important right that each person has their own journey and how they get there each person has different sets of skills that they they have and they can develop right now there's two you know there's two models of the world right right you can either Expend your time and effort in life, right? Working on the things you're not good at, right? And making them less of a weakness, right? Or you can focus on the things you're really good at, right? Understand your limitations, work mitigations for them, and be really, 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 really good. You know, focus your energy and your time and your will on the things you enjoy and you're good at. Generally, those things correlate, being good at enjoying. They're normally the, the things that make you different. Now, take, you know, one of the key skills for, you know, software engineers and, and engineers is to be able to tell the narrative of why we're making, where, why we're making technical decisions and how and articulate them, mm. right? That is probably the biggest skill we have, right? And without it, you know, we, you know, we become techies. Mm. Like I, you know, sometimes you fall into that role because it's needed because of the meeting you're involved in. Mm. But largely, right, how do, you, how do you get people to understand why we're doing something technically driven by a business requirement? What's the, what's the narrative without with using, not using our words, using different words, right? Being really good at putting yourself in the place of the person that, you know, I mentioned pretending being that support guy, you know, put your, put yourself in your boss's shoes or your, the guy that's paying your, your bid, you're paying for your work or the guy that's having going to have to take up support or doing the testing, right? Have an, have an appreciation for the things you do, mm. right? Because one of my biggest regrets is that I didn't value other disciplines when I was in earlier in my career mm. you know what's this data analyst nonsense I could do all that and I could I was not bad at it 
right? But then I met an amazing girl called Claire who went, who joined one of my teams and went like, and she was foisted on me. I didn't want her. I didn't think she was necessary. It was just like, give me another programmer, please, because this is stupid, right? Mm-hmm. She joined my team, right, and made everybody more productive because we, her ability to look at data and analyze it and progress through things. So part of this is the understanding of what I bring to the table, right, what I don't bring to the table, and what other people bring to the table. Because when you lead an organization, right, what you think you can do and what you can actually do, right, are very, very far apart, Mm. right? Your material ability to change things and drive things forward as you got more senior has little to do with the actual typey-typey work that you're doing. Mm. It has very much to do about coaching, mentoring, you know, setting expectations, understanding budgets, understanding forecasts, understanding how to organize and structure teams to deliver outcomes and communicate those outcomes effectively, right? right? Right. And that's when you become changed from being a, I think there's a, uh, it's, there's some language around contributor and, you know, input or as, there's loads of words around this, mm. but as you get more senior, essentially your ability to take that step back, go, okay, what are we actually trying to achieve? For example, okay, right now, right at my day job, right, I'm being asked, right, I think we should take a certain path, right? I'm 100% sure that if we do this, life will be better Mm. for everybody, right? I've given them the implementation, I've given them the the metrics, I've done the analysis, I, I can prove it. I can prove it from a finance perspective. I can prove it from an outcome perspective, right? But from a from a program perspective, mm. right? There's no appetite to do that piece of work mm. under any circumstances, right. right? There is appetite to take another path, which I don't entirely agree with. I think it's going to end badly, but in the end, right? We as a as a as a team, right, need to sort of focus and deliver on the outcomes. Mm. And sometimes you have to do things you don't want to do, mm. and you have to do things that you need to do because that's because that's what the outcome needs. So, to answer your question specifically, right, understand. So let's take it from top. Understand, right, your strengths, your weaknesses. Mm understand there's always the opportunity to turn your weaknesses into strengths Mm. and to be be that good Mm. right but to be honest sometimes it's just not worth the hassle i'll be honest it's just not worth the work there are Mm. people that are going to be better than you at doing that thing and you just need to be clear with other people what that's going to be doing right appreciate the people around you right there was a guy i worked with years and years ago who I was sitting there moaning because I was doing this horrible piece of work. I hated it. And he says, well, you played really well. You're sitting in a lovely office with really nice things. If you can't find something in the work to enjoy, right, go do something else. Mm. Right, because just too much. So that whole Marie Kondo thing of sparks joy, right, mm. in the work that we do, right, there's not much that sparks joy in sitting and chunking through an excel sheet and doing forecasts but actually i quite enjoy it 
you know, because over the years, I know the impact of doing that really well and being 100% you've done a good job, right? The impact of doing that thing is really important. Um, you know, appreciate the people around you, appreciate the skills they bring to the table, work with them and understand the, the things they bring to the table, put yourself in their shoes. Try to one, one thing I've learned from the whole Brexit thing is that my job isn't to persuade people to change their minds. People don't change their minds, right? You need to figure out how to get to a, an accommodated position with everybody around the table, right? That you can all support and move forward with, right? Collectively, mm. because that's how you achieve great things. Because if everybody's going in different directions and we're trying to do different things, we don't have common purpose, we will fail. Right. And whether that's in our personal lives or our family lives or anything else, right? That's where or work. Now, that's always the key marker for me, right? It, it's just work in the end, mm. right? So that's, that's another thing. It's just work, mm. right? You need to have stuff outside of work mm. that sits alongside, that gives you my best contacts, right? mates that I've made at work because you know, I've tried to be a good bloke. You know, I've tried to be nice to people. I've tried to make friends and, and influence people. Going back to Dale Carnegie. Mm. Um, you know, to, but actually the majority, you know, the large majority of other people I've met have been through rugby or football or, you know, you know, I've got a whole online, you know, friend group all around the wheel of time mm. randomly. Right. That I don't message that much anymore because the wheel the series ended ten years ago. But you know, they still. I, I can still see the occasional LinkedIn, you know, WhatsApp messages or LinkedIn messages to talk to them. The the next thing is read more, right? You may not learn things from books. You may not pick up, you know, but each book I've read, there's been a nugget. There's been something new in there. So I've been, oh, I could use that. And I've got better for reading widely and reading management and reading technical books and and reading fiction, just, you know, it is a good skill, the ability to take a 118-page PowerPoint and be able to summarize that quite quickly in your head in terms of a narrative, right? It's not something that is a skill. It's not something that comes from talent. Mm. It's something you you do repeatedly till you get good at, right? That, and that's it. Mm. The last the last so the last potentially the the most important thing right is is something actually um that um, I heard on the radio this morning um from a say um a a a high hurdler called Colin Jackson mm. and he says, well, you need to be in the environment to be the very very best you can be right." And as long as you're trying to be your very, very best, right, and taking the opportunities that scare you, right, you will progress and you will get better and you will make mistakes, mm. right? And those making of mistakes, right, aren't to be feared. They aren't to be ashamed of. They are a badge. Like, my God, the number of times I've, like, literally thought I'd destroyed my career, Right by doing something incredibly stupid, right? And I doubled down. I worked hard. I got on with my job. I put my hand up. Mia culpa. I messed up. 
I need to do better next time, right? Own your mistakes because actually that's the only way to learn, mm. right? But you need to appreciate your mistakes. Like, for example, Raymond's seen me in presentations, right? When I'm prepared and I'm in my, my, my in the right headspace, but what he doesn't see is the, the, the two hours or three hours before I've spent replaying what I'm going to say in my head and the hour and afterwards that I, that's one of the skills that I do have that probably is fairly rare is that I'm quite good at, re, uh, I've got a good memory for those conversations and I can replay them endlessly for days and days and days mm. until I get them right. Or I'll replay them in my head until I feel like I've said the right thing or done the right thing or behaved in the right and appropriate way that will um, move the conversation in the right direction. Mm. And that's really important because being able to read people, being able to understand them, are the technology will get to a certain place. It really will. But the personal skills and the ability to close out work effectively and to communicate that is probably how you progress more than anything else. Mm. Wow, that is a nice way to end today's episode. I have nothing else to ask. That was a very nice, you know, and um, nice way actually to end today's episode. And um, I think for me, my major take from your from your from your final words is to own your mistakes and to learn from them and not be afraid of them i think i like that term your mistakes are like a badge we do see you know a military man and all that you know come back with you know different batches like badges sorry based on the things that they have achieved and that is what the wealth of experience the wealth of um capacity that they have built over a period of time shane thank you so much for making time and mclean thank you for showing up today to make this episode a very fruitful one i really enjoyed a lot and looking forward to sharing this episode with everyone and um looking forward to also applying the things that that we have discussed here in my career so thank you so much yep merci beaucoup guys have a good day you too Data engineers, without a doubt, have an essential role to play in helping organizations unlock the value of their data. To truly stand out in this field, Shane reminds us to have a curious and investigative mindset in order to get the best insights from this newfound oil. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the TechSurf Podcast. See you in the next episode.